who is in the fourth circle of hell, who's pushing these rocks around. We're about to find out on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scorbro, and we are walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are at Inferno, the first canticle. We're in Canto 7, Chapter 7, however you want to look at that, and lines 36 through 66. We have come down to the fourth level. We have seen people in this level pushing giant boulders with their chests, smashing into each other, screaming at each other. Why do you hold on to things, and why do you throw them out? And now we're going to find out who exactly these people are. And I, feeling as if my heart had been run through, said, My master, please fill me in on who these people are. And were these all clerics, the tonsured ones on our left? And he to me, All here was so cross-eyed in their minds back in their original lives that no control governed their spending. They bellow out this stuff clearly when they come to the two points of the circle where their contrary guilt divides them. These were clerics who have no hairy caps on their heads, and popes, even cardinals, in whom avarice reached its highest achievement. And I, master, among these last sorts, I ought to clearly recognize some who were fouled with this sin. And he to me, You're collecting empty thoughts. The lack of discernment that besmirched their lives has darkened their souls beyond recognition. They will come to their two collisions for eternity. These will be resurrected from their tombs with clenched fists. And these will rise with short hair. Inappropriately tossing stuff out and storing it up have taken all of them out of the beautiful world and set them to scrapping. I can't offer a nicer word for it. Now you see, son, what buffoonery comes to these because of fortune's goods, so much so that humans fight each other over them. All the gold that's below the moon or ever could be is not enough to give rest to one of these worn-out souls. If you want to see the passage itself, go to my website, markscarbro.com. My header, Walking with Dante, you'll see all the lists of episodes for this podcast, and you can find my rough English translation there. Okay, let's do the passage. And it's not going to break into easy parts, so let's just go down it line by line. And I, feeling as if my heart had been run through, and I should just note... We started at line 36. If you remember, the comedy runs in tercets, in three-line bits, which means if we started this thing today at line 36, that means we're starting at the last line of a tercet. This is the first time we've ever done that. In fact, the tercets, the three-line bits in this canto, are starting to break over each other. Lines are wrapping around from the end of one tercet to another. It's all getting extraordinarily complicated in its language as it goes through. And I broke it here because last time we had the end and the conclusion of what was going on, and now we're turning to the pilgrims and questions and Virgil's answers. So, I, feeling as my heart had been run through, noticed that the pilgrim still feels pity for the damned, although it is lessening. We had no real pity for those in limbo, not really. In fact, he became one of them. We had the fainting attack with the lustful. We had mm, a level of sorrow over the damned with the gluttons. And now it's almost perfunctory. 
feeling as if my heart had been run through. It's just one piece of a line. And you'll note that I ended last time on a jousting image. They roll these balls around the circle as if they're jousting with boulders. And you'll notice that here, this reference to heart run through or heart pierced is actual jousting with a lance. I mean, this would be the real thing, right? As opposed to what these sinners are doing with their boulders, which is hardly jousting. So I, the pilgrim says, feeling as if my heart had been run through, thereby bringing us back to the jousting metaphor, but mm, with a more clear focus of jousting itself, because our pilgrim is honorable in ways that these are not, said, my master, please fill me in on who these people are. And were these all clerics? Oh, that just drops like a bomb. And were these all clerics, the tonsured ones on the left? You know, tonsured. They have shaved a bald spot on the top of their heads to indicate both their mortification of the flesh and their openness of their head to divine things. They've got those bald spots on the back of their head. Some of us get them naturally, and we are open to God naturally, <laughs> present company included. Or these all clerics, the tonsured ones on our left. This is our first bit. Who's here? It's everybody in the church. It seems like the avaricious are all members of the church. And the ones on the left, are these all clerics? It's going to kind of pull out toward where we see the prodigal, the ones who who spend too much, and the avaricious, the ones who hoard too much. They're kind of going to divide into these pieces, but they're all going to be connected to the church. And he to me, all here were so, and I said the word cross-eyed. I'm following the translation of Robert Durling here. It's a little tough in the Tuscan, and I'm just going to follow his lead with cross-eyed, um, nearsighted, who were squinty. Um, the word's a little tough, and so I'm giving Durling complete credit for my translation. All here were so cross-eyed in their minds back in their original lives, and this is going to play out better in the next passage. So just keep that in mind that we're talking about their original lives. Original lives that no control governed their spending. So the tonsured ones are apparently the prodigal ones, the ones who absolutely just spent like crazy. This is not the destruction of of wealth, we're going to come to people later who destroy property, who take pleasure in destroying their own wealth. This doesn't seem to be that. This just seems to be people who <laughs> who don't have any money in their checking account, oh, present company included again, who don't have any money in their checking account. These are people who spend more and more and more and everything they get, they get away, they just uh, absolutely get it, get rid of it. it. It flows out of their pockets. As my mother used to say, these are the people who have holes in their pockets. They bellow out this stuff clearly when they come to the two points of the circle where their contrary guilt divides them. Thus, the why do you hold and why do you throw away? These were clerics who have no hairy caps tonsured on their heads. And I take it that that's the prodigal, the, 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 the people who spend too much. Let me just say that my interpretation here is a little bit contentious. It's a little bit difficult to make complete sense of this, but I take it that the clerics, the tonsured ones, are the prodigal. And then it says, and popes and cardinals, or even cardinals, and popes and cardinals, in whom avarice reached its highest achievement. This seems to me to be the avaricious. So the popes and the cardinals are the avaricious and the run-of-the-mill clerics are the prodigal who spend too much. There's other ways to look at this because the Tuscan is a little bit funky here, but let's just stop. Popes, 
we've come across the first direct reference. There may have been two previous references. It may be that Plutus, back at the front of the canto, remember, says Pape Satan, and it may be that there's a way that Pape is a corruption of Papa, of Pope, maybe there. And if you remember way back in the neutrals, he who made the great refusal. Many believe that is a pope. I was arguing, I think, for Pontius Pilate. This is the first direct reference to popes in hell. In fact, if we just count up the number of popes in hell, there are more popes in hell, as we will see, than there are in purgatory or in paradise. And here we start with them. We don't know how many are here. Popes, cardinals, clerics, the avaricious the church. They're all here. Dante's taking them on. Let me just stop and talk about this for a minute. The anti-clerical stance of the comedy, which we're going to come to over and over again. I've already said this once in a previous episode, but I just want to say it again. Dante the poet is quite adept at distinguishing between St. Peter's throne and the man who is sitting in St. Peter's throne. Dante the poet has no problem with his veneration of St. Peter's throne, the papacy itself. His problem is with the people, the men, who sit in that throne. And while on the one hand you may say, well, of course, especially if you're a Protestant or if you're an unbeliever or if you're a Islamic or from another religious tradition or a Hindi or a Buddhist, whatever you are, you may say, well, of course, you know, people sit in St. Peter's throne who are good guys and then there are a lot of bad guys that sit in the throne. Of course, of course. Yeah, but that's not an easy statement for Dante, in fact, to divide the sitter from the seat is tough. It's going to be tough for any Catholic to do, given the history of the church through its schisms, through how much Rome has been fought over. But Dante the poet seems quite adept at doing it, and we shouldn't just dismiss that out of hand as if it's easy. Two, the clergy are a popular target for the sins of avarice in the Middle Ages. Think, if you know Chaucer, think to the Pardoner's Tale. Uh, this is written after Dante's comedy, but still, it's a frequent target. Uh, the clerics, the church, avarice, it just seems to come together, particularly in a world of limited resources. And here you walk into this giant gorgeous cathedral and, and there are relics in gold boxes and there are all kinds of beautiful, gorgeous ornamentation. And you're looking at all this and then you're walking back through the mud to your one-room house. Naturally, avarice is going to become easily associated with the church and the clergy are a popular target for, for sermons about the sin of avarice. But three, this canto ultimately is going to become a bit of a philosophical mess for two reasons. One, because the introduction of the clergy is ultimately going to bring up an extra biblical character, fortune. Two, the way the sin is defined is not necessarily a traditional Christian notion of a sin, but it is a, an Aristotelian definition of the sin. Let's hold all that for a minute, and let's just go back to the passage and look at it. 
and I, master among all these sorts, I ought to clearly recognize some who were fouled with this sin. Is is the pilgrim still thinking of Francesca? Because he didn't recognize Chaco in the gluttons, even though Chaco recognized him. He didn't recognize Chaco. He had to be filled in on who this was who sat up from the muck. Is that why he's still holding on? Because he knew Francesca before she came down off the wind in the lustful? It's interesting because, again, in the gluttons, all of their physical details have been wiped out. And here he seems to be still saying, well, hey, how come I can't see some of them? And Virgil says back, you're collecting empty thoughts. You, you know, <laughs> I love that phrase. You're colla- I wish back when I was an academic, I'd said it more often. You're collecting empty thoughts. You're collecting empty thoughts. The lack of discernment that besmirched their lives has darkened their souls beyond recognition. Again, changing color. How does a shade change color? How does it get darker? What color is it that it has darkened their souls beyond beyond recognition? They will come to their two collisions, Virgil says, for eternity. Notice here in this canto that no one steps forward to confess. After all, we have heard Homer speak in limbo. We've heard Francesca speak a lot amongst the lustful. We've heard Chaco speak a lot amongst the gluttons. In this canto, nobody steps out and nobody confesses. There's no sinner pointed out. Is this, there's several reasons that I could posit for this. Is this hesitation on Dante's part? After all, this is the first big anti-clerical statement being made in Inferno. Is he hesitating? Oh, I don't want to actually bring any of them out. I don't actually want to have a pope or a cardinal step out and say anything, lest I be run through not just the heart, but the body too. Is that, is there hesitation there? Or two, is his theme pressing him on, and so those long disquisitions from Francesca and Chaco, it's just that the thing is picking up so much speed that we're not going to have time for a big, long speech out of one of the avaricious or out of the prodigals. Or is this a comment on avarice itself? That is, no one has time to confess. They're accumulating or spending so much that they don't have time to confess. This is not what they're about. They're so focused on their stupid boulders, their stupid weights that they're rolling around this circle, and they've been so focused on collecting gold or else spending gold in their lives that they just don't have time for any kind of personal interaction. Mm, Much like the avaricious in my day. They just don't have time for any kind of personal interaction. So Virgil says they're going to be doing this for forever till their collisions for eternity. They will be resurrected from their tombs with their clenched fists, with their fists clenched. I take it that this is a reference to the avaricious, to the popes and the cardinals. They're going to be resurrected all with their fists tight, the way they hold on to things. And then the others, the tonsured group, the prodigal, the, the spenders, will rise with short hair. I take it that this means their tonsure, their shaved heads, will be gone and they will have short hairs. Um, John Sinclair, in his commentary on this passage, in his English language translation and commentary on this passage, says there's an old Italian proverb that some people spend to the ends of their hair. I don't know. I, I, I looked and looked for this outside of Sinclair's commentary on this passage, and I haven't been able to find it. Maybe it's true. Sinclair certainly might know where this quote-unquote 
old Italian proverb comes from. Some people spend the ends of their hairs. Maybe. It seems to me what it means is that the tonsure is erased. Their their sign of their holiness, of their openness to the divine has been erased in the resurrection because after all, they're, they're damned. They no longer have an access between their head and heaven. It's still a curious phrase, these will rise with short hair. It seems, mm, see, I keep pressing this, but it seems truncated. Inappropriately, Virgil goes on, tossing stuff out and storing it up have taken all of them out of the beautiful world. Interesting. And set them to this scrapping. Aquesta zuffa. He's using slang. Zuffa. Scrapping. Fighting. Infighting. Zuffa. The word doesn't even sound pretty, does it? And Virgil says, I can't offer a nicer word for it. Remember I told you. The canto is going to start to coarsen its language. Zufa is a grand example of this. And if you look at this passage in the Tuscan, some of the rhymes are awfully ugly. And in fact, we're going to find that over the course of Inferno, the language of Inferno will continue to coarsen from here on out. We're going to get much coarser words for bodily functions, much more, we would say in English, filthy language out of the poet, as if this kind of vulgarity is what's necessary to describe the infernal landscape around us. And this is one of the first moments in which Virgil tosses out a phrase, and Virgil even apologizes. I can't offer a nicer word for it. Okay, let's stop and look at exactly what happened right here. Inappropriately tossing out stuff and storing it up have taken them all out of the beautiful world, he said. And this connects to earlier when Virgil starts his speech and says all here were so cross-eyed in their minds back in their original lives, they had no control, that no control governed their spending. Misura, no measure covered their spending, no control or measure. We have reached the clearest statement of the Aristotelian mean. That is that we have on the one hand, as we would in Aristotle, we have avarice, hoarding too much money. We have prodigality, spending too much money. And for Aristotle, there's a median point, liberality, which means you're, you're spending and you're gaining are in balance. You do it correct. You find the golden mean, the great place, the Aristotelian notion of cutting right down the middle between the two extremes. This is not necessarily a Christian definition of sin. Aristotle got introduced in the last canto of the gluttons, and Aristotle is starting to take over Inferno. Professor Barolini, the great Dante scholar at Columbia, even claims that this notion of the Aristotelian mean goes all the way back to the opening line, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, in the middle mezzo. And she claims that this notion of the Aristotelian mean has been background noise running underneath the the cantos to this point in which now it erupts in full flower, in which we see that there are two extremes of a sin. I think she's right, but there is a problem. You can't have an Aristotelian mean of lust. What is it going to be? The lustful on one side and the virgins on the other? The non-sexual on the other? That's, that, that's what the church 
thinks the clergy should be. You can't, <laughs> there's no, I mean, maybe you and I could make a, 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 an Aristotelian definition of the people who are controlled by their lust, people who seem to not even live in their own bodies, and then, I don't know, the middle point in Aristotelian mean of people who take pleasure in their bodies without going over the top. I don't know. We could probably do this Aristotelianly. The problem is standing here in Christian theology in the Middle Ages, what are we going to do? You can't, you can't demonize those <laughs> who deny the flesh, that's that's called the basic sacrament that the clergy have to follow. That's the celibacy that they have to practice. And when we get to gluttony, what are we going to do? Say, okay, there's an is there a Aristotelian mean? I mean, maybe you and I can draw this out. That there's a there's on one side there are people who eat too much, and the other side, and God help me, I'm not impugning anybody, but there are people who starve themselves to death, and these are the two extremes. And the right thing in Aristotelian ethics would be to find this place in the middle where you eat to satiety, but you don't eat too much, but you don't starve yourself. Again. Problem, problem given medieval ascetic practices in which you are supposed to fast and many people starve themselves practically to death in order to mortify the flesh to find God. You can't really practice an Aristotelian mean right there, at least not standing in medieval theology. I think Barlini is right. I think this Aristotelian mean is running through these opening cantos of Inferno over and over and over again. And yet at the same time, there's a problem because it runs counter to a Christian definition of sin. But it seems as if Aristotle was introduced with the gluttons at the end of Canto VI, and it's not that 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 Aristotelian ethic is taking over. So that now we have a sin that's actually in two parts. We have a sin that is spending too much and a sin that is hoarding too much and we're certainly called to some median stance. And then, what is that median stance? Ah, here's where the whole thing gets incredibly difficult. Virgil goes on. Now you see, son, what buffoonery comes to these because of fortune's goods, so much so that humans fight each other over them. All the gold that's below the moon, or ever could be, is not enough to give rest to one of these worn-out souls. First of all, before we get to the point, the thematic point here, notice the unbelievable circularity of this canto. We've seen it from above. We've seen the ring from above. We've seen them rolling, which indicates pushing with their chest, and they must be rolling, which indicates round objects, perhaps, that they're pushing around. Again, we've seen the circle from above. We've Now we've got a reference to fortune and if you know anything about fortune it's all about the wheel of fortune that the goddess fortune spins around notice that there's references to the moon notice there's references to tonsures on heads look at how much circularity is going on in this canto it's beautifully structured right here because of this question of circularity that is holding this whole thing together from the moon to the tonsure to fortune to the circle itself <laughs> It's all unbelievably structured. And yet, what is this character of fortune doing in here? Remember last time the poet breaks out into that plea or that exhortation, God's justice. Who can believe, you know, that so many people are stocked up here and look what our guilt does to us and all that stuff. God's justice has slowly over this morphed into fortune. Extra 
biblical character. The goddess Fortune and her wheel comes to these because of Fortune's goods. Now, we're going to talk much, much, much more about this in the next episode of the podcast. But I find it so interesting that we have moved from a Christian theology through Aristotle out to the goddess Fortune. Yes, this is all going to get connected up with Boethius. We're going to save that for the next episode. But it causes some rifts and problems inside this canto. More next time, as I say, but note that we've moved from an impassioned plea or prayer to the justice of God to this point where Virgil brings up a distinctly non-Christian concept. Wow, that's gone a long way. Now, you could say, uh, Virgil, you know, we're not supposed to trust him, right? And maybe he's not completely set on what his theology is. Mm, yeah, but remember, in this canto, Virgil knew who Michael was. So, <clears throat> wow, everything seems to be pulling at itself, pulling in every direction. The bringing up of fortune is so odd here and so difficult. I think what's happening is that Dante is becoming impatient with the definitions of sin and grace that have been established in the openings of Inferno, and he's wanting a way out, and he's reaching, this is my interpretation of it, he's reaching toward concepts that will help him out, Aristotelian concepts, Boethian concepts, the goddess fortune. He's reaching toward these things. Just save that on Boethius till next time. He's reaching out to these things to pull them toward him. And the structure of the canto is becoming difficult. Now, I want to say the whole notion of structure is is unbelievably fraught. You know, I talk endlessly about the structure of, of comedy, and I will. I will continue to talk endlessly about the structure of comedy. But it's not necessarily the way many critics talk about comedy. The great Dante scholar, oh, philosopher, historian, and even literary crit critic, the great Italian critic, Benedetto Croce, Oh, man, if he heard me talking about structure and the comedy's structure um, exhibiting riffs, he would scream at me. As far as Croce was concerned, the framework of the comedy is almost irrelevant. Let me give you a quote from Croce himself, translated out of the Italian. The framework, that is the structure of the comedy, is just something on which the luxuriant vegetation of poetry is clambering, decorating it with pendulous boughs, festoons, and flowers. In other words, the structure doesn't matter. What's important is when you get down into it and you see the beautiful poetry, you see the use of slang, zuffa, you hear Francesca talk, you hear Chaco talk. When you reach these moments of poetic clarity, all this problem with structure doesn't matter. But to me, it does matter. I don't need Dante to be perfect. I don't need this poem to be inspired by God. I don't need this poem to somehow set down exactly what happens in the afterlife. I don't think this happens in the afterlife. I don't even think the church thinks this is what happens in the afterlife. The Catholic Church doesn't think there's a circle of the avaricious with stones rolling around and people screaming at each other. Oh, I don't need Dante to be inspired. I need him to be crafting a poem that carries more meaning than even he intends, which he's doing. But it strikes me that the poem is starting to break. 
is starting to break because the notion of sin as a function of the will, which we had with the neutrals and then a bit with the lustful and the men in limbo, people who couldn't choose, people who didn't choose, people who do choose wrongly, then that's breaking apart and we're getting an Aristotelian golden mean and now we're getting the goddess fortune. And in the next episode of this podcast, we're going to be with the goddess fortune for the entire time. Oh, it's just, to me, it's pulling at its seams. And then Plutus, the great enemy, but it's this figure, this guardian figure on this circle of hell is not really a great enemy. It's just a clucking, wolf-faced, puffy-faced thing that seems to collapse. And you should notice, too, that Plutus collapses in a naughty mess, like when the main mast gives away, as we discussed last time. And yet everything else from there on out, from Plutus' naughty mess is circular. Everything else is a beautifully half arc or a full circle. It's all rolling on this geometric perfection as opposed to that naughty mess that Plutus collapsed into after Virgil cursed him. So given all that, I think that there are rifts running here underneath this canto, underneath it that showing the art itself coming to a place that it needs to change desperately. It needs to move in a different way in order to get the program of the poetry and thematics and the comedy itself to work. Part of it is being set up. Vendetta, coarsening language, the notion of sinners lost inside themselves as here in which none of the avaricious or the prodigal even have the time to step out and talk about themselves, lost inside their own mm, corrupted concept of the self. This is all coming. And yet at the same time, you, I think you can feel the weight bearing on the poetry. There's something strangely off-putting about much of this canto. I think Dante is still searching for the way to say what he needs to say. He's starting to find it with neologisms, with creating words that are that carry the meaning, creating new words that no one's ever read before, creating notions of sin that connect it not to acts of will, but to the humanity of the individuals themselves. He's starting to, but he's still reaching for it from afar, which is why you need to come back for the next episode of Walking with Dante, in which the goddess fortune will appear in all her glory. So come back, subscribe, check me out on Twitter. I'm under my own name, Mark Scarborough. We can start a conversation there. Check out my website, markscarborough.com. You can see this passage, my translation of the Tuscan there. You can follow along, subscribe, please rate the podcast. I really appreciate it. And otherwise, I will see you next time when we, we will spin the wheel of fortune and let Virgil tell us exactly why some people on this world have a lot of things and some people don't have any.